Thank you. Thank you for coming out. I know this is not a normal uh, Sunday night for you, but I appreciate you uh, making the effort, not for my sake, hopefully, but for the sake of the Lord. I'd like you to uh, turn with me to the uh, book of Exodus, Exodus uh, chapter 25, and I want to uh, speak to you tonight on the habitation of God. Many, many years ago now, I felt uh, the Lord say to me, I want to take the church from visitation to habitation. That may uh, not register with some of you, but I have been a part of some of the visitations, if you want to call them revivals, or close to them, down in uh, Pensacola or other places. And it's, uh, it's wonderful when God comes and He visits a uh, region for a week or two weeks or three weeks or three years for that matter, whatever the case may be, but it's even better when He comes and He makes His abode in us. And the promise in John chapter 14, we will come and we will make our abode in you. Nancy and I have been visiting your very beautiful neck of the woods, uh, beautiful state here of Maine, and uh, it's going to be hard to leave, but this is not our habitation. We are visitors. We are visiting your state. We don't have a residency here, unless somebody wants to give us one, and we'd be open to that. But, <laughs> but uh, our habitation is in Arkansas, and we will be leaving uh, sometime late morning and uh, flying back home. And I believe that uh, God is wanting to take us again from visitation to habitation, where we have that sense of the, the continual sense of God's presence with us. And here in here in Exodus uh, chapter 25, verse 1, we're going to be looking at verse 8 and 9, but just let me give you the setting. It is God speaking to Moses. This is not Moses at the end of 40 days of prayer and fasting, sort of twisting the arm of God and saying, God, it's about time you paid us a visit type thing. This is God taking the initiative, and he says to Moses, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, and then we'll drop down to verse 8, I want you to construct a sanctuary for me or a dwelling place for me that I may dwell among you. I believe verse 8 is an eternal longing on the part of God. His longing is he is the ultimate father. Like any father, he wants to be with his family. And we don't have to twist God's arm. I appreciate uh, Tommy Tenney's book many, many years ago. It was a bestseller for a while, God Chases. But, you know, it's almost as though, you know, if I'm fast enough and I can sprint fast enough, I may have a chance of catching him. If God slows down a little bit, you know, I got you type thing. The fact is that God is a chaser. And here we find God chasing man. I prefer to think of God that way. That's the longing God has. He said, build me a house, build me a sanctuary. I want to dwell among you. And so verse 8, we have God's desire. Or if you like, God's request. And like I said a moment ago, I believe it's an eternal desire because God never changes. I am the Lord and I change not. With God, there's no variableness, no shadow of turning. But then we go to verse 9, and it says, According to all that I'm going to show you, as to the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all the furniture, just so you shall construct it. So in verse 8, we've got God's desire. In verse 9, you've got God's demands. In verse 8, you've got God's request. In verse 9, you've got God's requirements. In other words, God says, I'm not going to dwell anywhere. 
to use a good Irish expression, I, my mother is Irish and we lived there for a number of years, and so uh, God is finicky. It's a good Irish word. He's fussy. He's particular. He says, listen, I want you to build me a house, but I'm going to tell you the type of house. I'm going to tell you the furnishings. I'm going to tell you the color scheme. I'm going to tell you how to arrange the furniture. I'm going to tell you exactly the type of house I want, you know, where the pictures are going to be hung, so to speak, and where the lamps are going to be placed. And, you know, I mean, that's God. And so we learn something immediately about God, and that is that he wants things done his way. He doesn't give Moses the liberty of saying, you know, just as long as I've got some furniture, you know, kind of arrange it any way you want. No, just so you shall construct it. I'm going to use some words interchangeably for a moment just to try and bring home this point. If I were to tell you the truth, I'm going to humor you a little bit and uh, anesthetize you and then we'll operate. But uh, the word habitation... The dictionary defines the word habitation as the usual place that someone or something is found. The usual place. You know, if I want to contact Brother Quinton, I don't call the local bar. I hope not. You know, he hasn't been there. I'll either call the church here or call his home. There is a usual place that he has found. Years ago, when our three daughters were much smaller, uh, we now have eight grandchildren and oldest one is in his 20s, so well in the 20s. But when our kids were much smaller, we took them to the San Diego Zoo. And in those days, that zoo was reputed to be one of the best zoos in the world. And I remember walking around and seeing the lions and the tigers and all these animals from Africa, giraffes and hippos and so on. And I thought, well, you know, one thing that uh, San Diego has in common with these animals is the temperature is what they're used to, you know, there in, uh, in Africa. And then I came to the next enclosure, and there was a polar bear. And my heart went out to that poor critter, because I think this thing was not designed to function in Southern California. You know, 90 degrees, if it was minus 40, poor thing would feel at home. And uh, I think sometimes we're asking God to fit into a habitation that he's not used to. And we're going to look tonight at the habitation of God, the usual place that God has found. And then we have the word environment. Nancy and I pastored the last church we pastored was up in the uh, Seattle area, a little place called Gig Harbor. And uh, if you know anything about uh, Washington, it's very, very liberal, but uh, there are tens of thousands, seemingly, environmentalists up in the Northwest. And even though it rains every day, if you were to spit, they would declare it a national wetlands. I mean, they are fanatics. You know, they will tell you, don't cut down this tree, don't affect this, don't change that. In other words, certain elements, certain components need to be in place in order for that bug, butterfly, whatever it is, to survive. And they are, you know, fiercely protective of those little critters or big critters, whatever they happen to have on their mind at the time, and don't destroy the environment. You know, otherwise, you know, we won't have these things uh, any longer. And so God lives, if you like, in a certain environment. Certain components, certain elements need to be in place in order for God to sort of thrive and uh, survive, so to speak, at least in our relationship with Him and uh, His with us. And then you have the word uh, atmosphere. 
That's when you take the environment and you bring it inside. We can create an atmosphere. There's already a beautiful atmosphere created tonight because of the worship team and so on. But we could dim the lights. We could light a few candles. We could bring in a violinist. And, uh, you know, we could create a very romantic atmosphere. Or we could open all the windows and uh, turn on the lights, bring our brother up on the drums and create a sort of militant atmosphere. We can change the atmosphere. Isn't that right? And God, again, dwells in a certain atmosphere. He's looking for a certain atmosphere. You know, we have, uh, uh, I'm sure you, you have them here up in the, uh, where you are, indoor plants and outdoor plants, right? And uh, the indoor plant will do pretty well outside right now. But uh, a few months from now, you're going to have to bring that indoor plant that is outside back indoors because it is not designed to go through a main winter, right? And if you put it in that sort of atmosphere, that sort of environment, it will not survive. It wasn't designed to survive. And so we're going to try tonight to understand the atmosphere, if you like, the habitation of God. And then you have the word culture. Culture is the way in which we're raised, the things that we get used to, the things we like and don't like, and so on. Somebody said if it wasn't for yogurt, there'd be no culture in America. But uh, anyway, <laughs> but we have a culture. You know, I come from a British culture, and uh, my parents uh, moved when I was uh, almost 15 to America, and um, my father settled us as a family in a Bible school in Minneapolis, Bethany Fellowship, Bethany Press, some of you are familiar with their writings, and they had a very strong uh, sanctification message, very strong holiness message, and so on, and I made friends very quickly with some of the staff kids, and within a few days, I was horrified to discover that they were swearing. I mean, swear words that my mother would, you know, give me the laying on of hands for sure. Uh, you know, she, she believed in that, and uh, thank God she did, but... Um, uh, after a while, I noticed once in a while they looked at me like, you know, I can't believe he's using those words. Now, I was not swearing in my culture, and they were not swearing in your culture, but uh, swear words on either side of the pond are different. And I'm not about to uh, differentiate now which are which because uh, it's a bit of a blur, and I do have a little bit of tread left on me, I think. So, um, but, uh, you know, it depends on the environment, doesn't it? Our daughter is a missionary in China, and uh, years ago she came back with some photographs. She'd been down in the, uh, uh, the marketplace, and she uh, had all these pictures of dogs uh, that you could buy, and they were all strung up, all gutted. You know, if you had a big family, you bought the St. Bernard, I guess. If you're on a diet, it was a chihuahua, but, but all, all these dogs were there. Now, you know, there's something within us, in our culture, that, you know, poor old Fido, we don't want to see him go in the crock pot. But, uh, you know, in China, it's, it's, it's common. You know, again, cultural differences. Nancy and I were missionaries in New Guinea in the early 70s. We had a friend that was working in a very remote area. Most of New Guinea is pretty primitive, at least it was. There's uh, about uh, 4 million people and 700, uh, 700, right, 700 languages, distinct languages, not dialects, but uh, Wycliffe or Wycliffe have their largest base in the world there. But anyway, we had a friend, and uh, he worked in one of these remote areas, and he was telling us the story of when he first arrived, he hired one of the uh, young men to work with him, one of the nationals, and after a while, he would take out his uh, handkerchief and open up, blow his nose, put it back in his pocket, and this went on for a few days. Finally, the young uh, national said to him, he said, uh, why do you save that stuff, and what do you do with it? 
He had never seen a handkerchief in his life. You know, he did it the way the farmer does it, and I won't demonstrate, but... Uh, but uh, here was this man taking out this, you know, nice white piece of cloth, blowing into it, folding it up, putting it back in his pocket, and I guess being a budding entrepreneur, he wanted to cash in on the crop, you know. But uh, cultural differences. You know, you go to Europe, the Germans have the wedding band on the right hand, and, uh, you know, we put it on the left hand, and I mean, there's all sorts of differences. God, again, has his own culture. And we need to understand, because you can offend somebody by not understanding their culture. Isn't that right? Years ago, I did a missionary uh, conference. At least I was a devotional speaker in the morning in uh, Thailand. And uh, we were living in New Zealand at the time. And the year prior to that, there was another man that I worked with, uh, one of the elders in the church, who had also been at that same conference. And so when they heard I was from New Zealand, they said, you know so-and-so, and they mentioned his name. I said, yeah, he's a good friend of mine. You know, we work together and so on. And they were still getting over the fact that uh, he had uh, tried to illustrate bringing down Goliath, and he needed a projectile. And so he took his shoe off, and he threw it. He's a very dramatic sort of guy. And he threw it over the audience. Well, in uh, Thailand, the worst possible thing you can do is put uh, people under the sole of your feet. In fact, they dedicated a building, multi-story building, and they evacuated it so that the, uh, the king of Thailand would not be under the sole of somebody's feet. And so the lower you go in the body, if you sit and you point your foot at somebody, it's highly offensive. So he had highly offended them, not understanding their culture. I say all that to say this, we need to understand God's culture. God has a way of doing things, and uh, we need to come into conformity with that. Your ways are not my ways, God said. Your thoughts are not my thoughts. That was not that we can't know the ways of God because the Bible says, teach me your ways. It was God rebuking his own people. You guys are so different than I am. That's not my intention, but that's the way it is. And uh, we need to learn again the ways of God. Let's turn now then to uh, the book of uh, Revelation. Revelation chapter 4. And as you know, while you're turning to this, that um, when God spoke to Moses back there in Exodus, he took Moses up the mountain. He was gone for 40 days, you recall. During that time, of course, they created the golden calf and so on. They thought Moses was not coming back, that he'd fallen down some crevasse or something, broken his neck. And so, you know, they gathered all the jewelry and made the golden calf and said, we need a God that will go before us. But uh, while Moses was up on the mountain, the Bible says a cloud came and the children of Israel could not see him. And I believe that, uh, you know, on the other side of that cloud, if you like, a cloud opened and God brought Moses into his eternal dwelling place. And he said, Moses, this is where I dwell. I want you to sort of imbibe of this atmosphere, this, uh, uh, this place where I dwell. I want you to absorb, if you like, the habitation that you're in. And I want you to replicate that on earth. Because the Bible says that God showed him the pattern. It wasn't a blueprint. I believe he actually saw, if you like, the habitation of God. And God said, I want you to replicate this because the earthly tabernacle was a copy of the true tabernacle, the Bible says, which is in heaven. And so God uh, said to Moses, make it exactly. Now, you can tell a lot about a person by going to their home. Is that right? I remember years ago ministering down in Florida, and the church receptionist called me a week early, and she said, listen, would you uh, be happy if we uh, put you in a, a condo? Uh, you're going to be with us a few days, and uh, uh, I'm not that fussy about where I stay. And uh, they said, well, you'll give you more room, and so on and so forth. So sure enough, I flew down there, 
the uh, pastor picked me up. We drove to this uh, condo complex. I went up a flight of steps, and the moment I stepped in the door, I knew the man was single. <laughs> I mean, there were barely, you know, no curtains, no sort of frilly little things, and, you know, there were two speakers that would uh, dwarf these ones here uh, on either side of a big TV and four-wheeler magazines on the coffee table and so on, and no little frilly stuff at all, you know. I found out he preferred to be the sort of night watchman at this church and hardly ever used it, but uh, all I had to do was step in to the atmosphere that he dwelt in, and it tells you something. You can go into somebody's home the moment you cross the threshold. You can tell if they need a sloppy kids or no kids, you know, type of furniture they like, whether it's antique or whatever type of artwork they like. You know, maybe you, not that I would ever take the liberty, but if you had the liberty of strolling around, maybe you go into a bedroom and there's a little crib and you think, well, they're either grandparents or they've got a, a young child. You go into another room, it's plastered with posters. You think they've got a teenager. You know, maybe you come in through the garage and there's jet skis and water skis and, uh, you know, all sorts of fishing rods and so on. You think these people are into outdoor sports. Maybe you come into the lounge and there's a grand piano and a violin and a flute and a guitar and you think somebody in this family is musical. All you've got to do, you don't have to have the occupant in the house to find out what sort of person lives in that house. All you've got to do is look at the type of furniture and the things that are going on and it tells you a lot. So with that in mind now, we are in Revelation chapter 4 and we are going to visit God's house. This is, the, this is not the copy, this is the real thing. Notice in verse 1, it says, uh, and you know, uh, John, of course, is in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He's being caught up to heaven, and the door of heaven opens, and he is invited in. In verse 1, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door was standing open in heaven. And the first voice that I heard, like the sound of a trumpet speaking to me, said, come up here, and I'll show you what will take place after these things. So God's house has a door. I'm sure it's figurative. But nevertheless, the door of heaven opens. There is a voice from inside that beckons to John and says, John, welcome, step inside. And verse 2, immediately he said, I was in the Spirit. And behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. The very first thing that John becomes aware of is the fact that the moment he steps through that door, he is fascinated, if you like, with the fact that there is a throne and one sitting on the throne. Now, we don't have a throne in America. The previous president had one, but, <clears throat> but this one doesn't. And, uh, but nevertheless, I'm from England, and we do have a throne there. We have a queen, and the throne represents authority, power, represents the, the will of the person that sits on that throne. From that throne, they extend their scepter, they rule, they reign. Again, it is the seat of power, the seat of government, all of those things. And you'll notice the throne is occupied. There's no help wanted sign sitting beside it. Vacancy applied within. I saw the throne and one sitting on the throne. If God is going to make his abode in us, he demands a throne. Let me say that again. If God is going to make his abode in us, he demands the throne. I think it's the, to me, it is the one issue that I have labored most of my life. Again, my teaching on the cross deals with this area that most Christians give God their sin. Very few Christians give God their life. 
God is really not interested in your sin. He can't do anything with your sin, and so He buries it in the depths of the sea. But the purpose of the cross is that He went to redeem for Himself a people. And the Bible says you're not your own. You have been bought. You have been purchased. Thy kingdom come means, God, you have the right to rule. Just as you sit on the throne in the natural, in that sense, you are given the throne of my life. It's not my will, it's your will. It's not my way, it's your way. Jesus, be the Lord of all the kingdoms of my heart. Rule over my affections, rule over my desires, rule over, again, my finances or whatever it is. Jesus, I want you, again, to occupy the throne of my life. Not that I've just given God my sin so I can have the assurance that when I die, I go to heaven. No, it's more than that. It's making Him Lord. I picked up a book a number of, uh, well, it's about a year ago now. I was ministering in a little town, about two hours uh, drive, less than that, from our house. And the uh, pastor had a book called Slave. That was the title, Slave, by John MacArthur. And I'm not a John MacArthur fan, uh, not that much of a Calvinist. But uh, anyway, that book began, uh, and he said, uh, I've always considered myself to have a good knowledge of the Word of God. I'm sort of paraphrasing. He said, I've written, I forget what it is, 50 books or something. I've done an entire commentary on the Bible and so on and so forth. But he said, it wasn't until I picked up another book, and he mentions the name of the author, and I can't remember it right now. And he said, uh, for the first time, I came to understand that the word translated servant, that is translated in all our various translations of servant actually is the word slave. But because of slavery, we have shied away from that because it's got a sort of negative connotation. And so we've used the word servant. But he said, we are literally slaves of God. God is our master. He is the Lord. He is the master. And he wants to rule and reign. Thank God he is a good master. In fact, he brought out that uh, slaves were treated better than servants. Servants could quit and, you know, if they don't like the master or whatever, just take off. And after all, they were there to serve, get a paycheck. But he said uh, it was to the master's advantage to look after his slave because if he looked after him and treated him fairly and so on, he would get more work out of him and so on. So he said actually there were positive things about being a slave. But it's a very interesting book. uh, And... uh, certainly confirmed uh, much of what I felt for many, many years. We don't really give God the right to rule our lives. And yet he is a king, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords, the master of all masters. And uh, while we know that theologically, when it comes to the practical realm, we really don't want him to take over our life. We don't want him to rule and reign. And so we welcome him as our savior and we reject him as our master. But again, if he's going to make his abode in us, he says, see to it, you make it exactly. Here we have now a glimpse into God's habitation, an understanding of the ways of God, the culture of God, if you like, the environment that God lives in, the atmosphere that God lives in. He is a king, and he needs to be treated as such. Now, most of you kings here, I'm referring to husbands, you have a throne. We have a little factory in our town of 15,000 called the Lazy Boy Factory, one of many. And that's where the thrones are made. <clears throat> and uh, most, most kings have a throne. Isn't that right? And they extend their scepter. And they, shh, dad's watching the game. And if uh, anybody is sitting on the throne when the king comes in, 
they know automatically that's where dad sits. You know, they may be six or seven or eight. You know, wood to God, we respect to God in the same way. That's where God sits. He wants the throne of your life. He wants the throne of my life. The next thing we find out, and we drop down to verse 8, it says, The four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, full of eyes around and within, and day and night they do not cease but to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. John now becomes aware, not only that he has stepped into the throne room, but he has stepped into an atmosphere of absolute holiness. God is and demands holiness in your life and my life. Not a holiness that we can produce in our own strength and so on, but he wants to, he said, be ye holy as I am holy. One of the basic uh, words for holy is health. We are fanatics when it comes to health. Isn't that right? As Americans, you won't know it, but we are. And we spend multiplied billions of dollars on health-related products, whether it's Nike or Adidas, you know, shoes or whatever, whether it's vitamins that we pop every morning and all of those things. You know, we're fanatics about keeping ourselves healthy. And if we come down with some sort of twinge of pain somewhere that we haven't experienced before and it persists over a couple of days, let's say a weekend, and by the time Monday morning rolls around, you are really feeling uncomfortable. And, and uh, of course, we always imagine the worst. And we think, I need to get this thing diagnosed. I need to get an operation or prescription or whatever. And you call up the doctor on the Monday morning and you say, listen, I need to make an appointment. And the lady said, boy, he's got a busy, busy week. But there's an, uh, there's an opening on Friday afternoon or Thursday afternoon. And you think, my goodness, this is 8 o'clock on Monday morning. I can't tolerate this pain and wait till Thursday. So you either go to the emergency ward at the hospital or you say, listen, if there's a cancellation, would you please let me know? We want to get in there. We want that thing diagnosed. We want that thing dealt with as soon as possible. And yet when it comes to the sickness of sin, we will go years again with unforgiveness, bitterness, pride, you know, all sorts of things festering in us and never go to the great physician. And holiness again is allowing the blood of Jesus Christ to have his way in our life and to surrender, to come to that place of repentance and live in that place of acknowledging, God, I need you. Cleanse me. I want to come into your presence with clean hands and a pure heart uh, and so on. And so holiness is uh, absolutely vital. In the Old Testament, we have the story of Noah. And you know the story how Noah built the ark and then after the uh, rains had subsided, he couldn't tell if the waters had abated or not because the light was seemingly, the windows were either above, or at least like these windows up here, he couldn't look out and say, it's been dry now for the last seven days. And so the only way he could find out, he released a raven. Problem with a raven is it's an unclean bird and it will settle on any sort of you know, debris, whether it's a bloated carcass uh, floating on the surface of the deep or whatever. A raven doesn't care where it lands and where it settles. And the Bible says Noah could not determine that the waters had abated or settled. And so uh, he sent out a dove. And the dove flew around. And the Bible says the dove came back because there was no resting place for the sole of her feet. In other words, the dove will not settle where the raven will settle. And he waits another week, I think it is. He releases the dove again. Towards the end of the day, the dove comes back with a freshly picked olive uh, leaf in her beak. And Noah knew this is fresh vegetation, things have dried out, things are beginning to spring up again. It wasn't a slimy leaf that was floating on the, uh, the water. 
And so he's able to open the ark and so on. It's interesting to me, at least, that the dove is said to be female. And I get into trouble sometimes when I say this, but I'll say it anyway. Please don't put it in concrete. But I believe the Holy Spirit, if you like, is the feminine member of the Godhead. Don't put that in, in concrete. But uh, the Bible says you can, uh, uh, you can be forgiven if you sin against the Father. You can be forgiven if you sin against the Son. But there's no forgiveness if you sin about the, against the Holy Spirit. Not in this life or the life to come. And the Holy Spirit is extremely sensitive. That's a good thing and a bad thing. In the case of the Holy Spirit, it's a good thing. But you know, those of you who are married know that your wives have got that sensitivity. You know, you go to buy a car and uh, you're looking it over and you're a mechanic and you, your wife says, you know, I, I just don't feel good about it. And you know she doesn't know the difference between a Ford and a Chevy and doesn't know the difference between a V8 and a six-cylinder, but she doesn't feel good about it. And you override that. You know, and you say, you know, you don't know what you're talking about. You know, I, this is the one I want, and get three blocks down the road, and it conks out. You know, I told you, you know. <laughs> you know. But, you know, wives have got that sort of, and the Holy Spirit is that way. Isn't that right? Very, very easily grieved, very, very easily quenched. And the fact is, it is the Spirit of God that dwells in your life and my life. I know we say to children, you know, Jesus is knocking at the door, and he wants to come in from Revelation but the fact is, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. It is the Spirit of God that indwells you. That same sensitive Holy Spirit that is so easily grieved and wounded. Why? Because He is the Spirit of holiness. In fact, the Bible reverses it on occasion. He is the Spirit of holiness. If I had a spirit of anger, you would expect me to get angry. If I had a spirit of pride, you'd expect me to go around with my head in the air and not talk to you and so on. If I had a spirit of lust, you'd see me looking at things that are lustful and so on. If I have a, the Spirit of God in me, you should see holiness in my life. He is the Holy Spirit, and uh, He wants to make His abode in us. He says, you need to be clean. You need to be clean. If I'm going to dwell in you, it is a holy place. Wherever you find God in the Bible, again, to me, this chapter is a sort of a, a mini what is a mini summary of the nature and character of God? God is a holy God. Moses found that out when he was on the backside of the desert, and all of a sudden he saw a bush that burst into flame, and it wasn't the fact that it burst into flame that got his attention as much as the fact that it wasn't consumed. It kept on burning. You know, the lightning would strike bushes, and a few seconds later it would just, you know, go up and be gone, but this one kept glowing and burning, and so he makes his way over, and God says, Moses, take your shoes off. The place you're standing is holy ground. Joshua, outside Jericho, angel Lord comes, remove your shoes. The place you're standing is holy ground. Isaiah goes in the house of God one day, has a revelation again of the holiness of God as a seraphim begin to cry out, holy, holy. God is always in a place of holiness. And he, when he dwells in your life, he wants an atmosphere again of absolute holiness. I mentioned it a little while ago, at least I think I did. My wife and I lived in New Zealand for 15 years and raised our children there. Basically, most of the, uh, they would consider New Zealand their home. Uh, and one of the problems we faced when they were in school was that we didn't have any relatives, no grandpa, no grandma, and no relatives, no aunts and uncles, and so we always sort of struggled. You know, they've got two weeks off, what are we going to do? Or a month off, what are we going to do? You know, we can't go visit, uh, you know, or send them up to grandpa's house or nanny's house or whatever. And uh, so it was always a little bit of a problem. 
And then one uh, particular vacation time, somebody told us about this cabin that you could rent. Uh, New Zealand, if you know anything about it, is about four or five million people and between 50 and 75 million sheep, <clears throat> depending what time of the year it is, if it's lambing season and so on. And where we live was the southern, uh, the South Island, very beautiful, big mountains go up to 12,000 feet, Spina Mountains, Southern Alps, and it's just a beautiful uh, place. And they told us about this cabin. There was down this uh, uh, valley, you go down this gravel road for a couple of miles and beautiful uh, hills on either side and mountains on either side. There's a stream and they told us that, uh, you know, you'll enjoy it. It's a beautiful place and so sight unseen, we booked this place. I'll cut out all the uh, extra details and the day came when we pulled in at the, uh, the, uh, the house and uh, got the key from the lady and you know, she said, you can't miss it, it's the very next house on, down the road. Sure enough, here was this gravel road, and uh, we jumped out of the car, and the moment we walked into that house, it was an absolute dump. <laughs> I mean, it was terrible. Yeah, the, the furniture was terrible, springs coming up. I went into the kitchen, and around the baseboard of the kitchen were literally dozens, if not hundreds of uh, empty, you know, alcoholic beverage bottles of different sorts and so on. Went into the bedroom, the only one with a double bed, and uh, my wife took one look at the mattress, and she said, there is no way I'm going to sleep on that. It was a multicolored mattress, but uh, not when it came out of the factory. So you get the message. We had driven a couple of hours. We'd brought our own bedding and so on. If I remember, we took some newspaper, and I convinced her, you know, that we could make it, and... Uh, we put newspapers down over that uh, mattress, and then we put a sheet over that, and a blanket over that, and then another sheet over that, and so on. Got the kids settled for the night, and I said to my wife, I said, this is not exactly, you know, the sort of place we thought it would be. Every time I sat down, you know, I thought I was going to get the plague. I mean, it was that bad. And I was raised on a farm, and I've been seven years with YWAM, and slept in banana sheds, and grass huts in Fiji and all sorts of places, but there's something about that place that was just, you know, yeah. And we were going to be there for over a week. We went to bed, and I thought, well, the environment outside is certainly better than the atmosphere inside, and we can get out there, the kids can swim, I can do some fishing, we can go for walks, it's beautiful in the, you know, outside. Went to bed, woke up early in the morning to the pitter-patter of rain. And all the old houses in New Zealand have got corrugated iron roofs. And so you could hear the rain coming down, intensifying, and so on. Long story short, four days of uh, torrential sort of rain. And I said to my wife, I said, darling, let's go home. She didn't have to be convinced. Uh, we went, we dropped the key off, we made some excuse about the weather, we didn't want to embarrass the lady. We found out later, it was really a hunter's uh, lodge or a fishing lodge where guys would go, they, all they wanted was a place to sleep, you know, from the elements. They'd cook up there, whatever they'd shot and caught in the, the river and so on, you know, drink themselves drunk and so on. It was not the place for a family. And I think sometimes God ends up in an environment like that, a holy God. Now, we know that the Bible says the moment you are born again, we have the washing of regeneration. It's instantaneous. You know, you can be the worst sinner in town, and in uh, 10 seconds, you can go from being a child of the devil to a child of God. Isn't that right? But the Bible also says there is the renewing of the Holy Ghost. That is a process. 
And as long as we cooperate, the Holy Spirit's job is to highlight things in our, in our lives that are not conducive to His way of doing things and so on. And as long as we cooperate, we're fine. But the moment we begin to resist and not deal with those areas of our life, then we grieve, we quench the Spirit of God. And God wants again to live in our life. He is a holy God, and He wants that atmosphere of absolute holiness. The next thing John becomes aware of is the next verse in verse 9. And it says, the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him that sits on the throne. John now becomes aware that there is an atmosphere of thanksgiving. Sound familiar? We enter into his gates. We go into the front door with thanksgiving. David somehow understood that. You know, he was always asking, well, I don't know always, but he certainly asked himself, Lord, who can ascend into the hill, Lord? What does it take to abide in your house? Got to have clean hands and a pure heart. You know, don't lift up your soul to vanity and swear deceitfully. In other words, there are certain conditions, if you like. But God says, if you're going to dwell with me, if, uh, if I'm going to make my abode in you, or you're going to make my, your abode in me type thing, then certain requirements are necessary. And one of those requirements is thanksgiving. God hates whiners. Isn't that right? One of the reasons the children of Israel never made it into a promised land was not just their immorality, which was one of the reasons and so on, but the fact that God says, lo, these ten times you have murmured against me. You're a bunch of grumbling people. I don't want grumblers in my house. I don't get along with grumblers. And you know, the grumbling is all about me. You know, you grumble that I don't feed you the right food. You grumble about the leadership. You grumble about this. You grumble about that. And therefore, you are not going to enter in. I mean, that's a serious thing. I may be saying it in a way that's somewhat humorous, but I'm trying to get your attention. God is serious about Thanksgiving. New every morning, ye mercies. Great is your faithfulness. He daily loads us with benefits. Romans chapter 1, when they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, neither were they thankful. And therefore, God gave them over to a reprobate mind. That's the importance of thanksgiving. In everything, or for everything, give thanks. And we've got to cultivate that. That God is a God that is a God that we need to be grateful for everything that we've got. New every morning again, your mercies. So it says here that we give glory and honor. We could uh, look at those But the Bible says, whatever you do in word or deed, do all to the glory of God. Do all to the glory of God. And then we have to honor God. We honor God by recognizing again who He is. He's a king. And therefore, we treat Him as a king. We honor Him as a king. How dishonoring it is for you to invite Jesus Christ into your life and say, listen, you can sit anywhere in this house if you like, but the throne belongs to me. That is a dishonoring of the king. You're saying, listen, I am more important than you are, Lord. Feel free to sit there, sit there, make yourself comfortable, but don't sit here. I don't want you in control. Now, we don't say it in so many words, but we live it, don't we? And it's highly offensive. Again, we don't honor him as such. And we, we need to. But this matter of thanksgiving is important. Again, we enter his gates with thanksgiving. Lift up your heads, O your gates. You know, let, let the king of glory come in. He comes in through thanksgiving. He what? Inhabits the praises of his people. That's his habitation. 
you can create an atmosphere that will draw the presence of God. I mean, that's why we do have, you know, music before the ministry of the Word. It's to create an atmosphere. Not that God isn't already here. He's obviously, God is everywhere present. But the intensity of God's presence can increase. You can put a rheostat on all of these lights and you can dim it down so there's only, you know, three watts or whatever. They use lumens these days, but, you know, 20 lumens or whatever. But then you can turn that thing up and you can brighten it. It's the same light. We can say, well, there's light in this room, but the intensity of that light can increase. The intensity of God's presence can increase. And one of the ways we can do that is to draw him in, again, because he inhabits the praises of his people. I remember years ago when we bought my parents' home in East Texas. My father had died and my mother had moved to be with my older brother in Argentina. And uh, I was rummaging around in one of those little sheds at the back. And uh, I uh, pulled out a hummingbird feeder, one of those little plastic red things, you know, with yellow flowers. And it was dirty and dusty. I took it in the house, cleaned it up, made a concoction of a little bit of honey and some water. And uh, filled that thing up, put it outside. I had not seen hummingbirds, you know. Uh, around the house, but within about an hour, all of a sudden there were hummingbirds. The next day, I think I counted about 12 hummingbirds. I created an atmosphere that drew them. They were attracted to that, you know, red plastic, you know. I deceived them, but uh, <laughs> they thought, but nevertheless, they got a little bit of nectar, maybe not the kind they were used to, but, but anyway, you can create an atmosphere for the presence of God. And that atmosphere is one of thanksgiving. It changes everything. And then the last thing is there in verse 10. The 24 elders will fall down before him that sits on the throne and will worship him. Worship. Worship is something that I honestly don't think we fully comprehend, and certainly I don't have all the answers either. But my father always used to say prayer is preoccupation with our needs. Praise is preoccupation with our blessings, and worship is preoccupation with God alone. In other words, our prayer, most of our prayers, preoccupation with our needs. God heal me, God protect me, God do this, God, do, God bring in the mortgage, or whatever it is. And then our, thank, uh, our praise is, thank you for healing me, thank you for protecting me, thank you for, you know. But worship is just preoccupation with God. Preoccupation with God himself regardless of our circumstances, and so on. My dad, again, used to say that he had uh, traveled, as he did, extensively in America and would often speak at uh, seminaries and Bible colleges. And he said, I used to love to go through their curriculum and see, uh, you know, what they were offering, what courses they were offering. And he says, I've yet to find a Bible school anywhere in America that has a course on worship. And then he would very quickly add plenty of courses on music. Plenty of courses on music. Worship transcends music. It doesn't mean that you can't worship with music, but it deals with the heart and not your ability, your giftedness with a guitar, a piano, a voice, or whatever. It transcends all of that. It's the heart attitude, isn't it? And there are three great acts of worship to me in the Bible, and none of them have anything to do with music. Now, you can differ with me if you like, but I think uh, the first one is uh, Abraham. And uh, Abraham is the father of all of us that believe. The Bible says not the ultimate father, but he is the father of all that believe. In other words, he is a role model. He is a prototype. He's a, an example. Much of what you see God doing in the life of Abraham, he will do in your life. 
And one of the things he'll do in your life, he'll bring you to the point where you have to give up your Isaac. And that Isaac may be a career, it may be a relationship, it may be some other thing, it may be the love of your country or whatever. And he'll say, are you willing? Do you love me more than these? As he said to uh, Peter, lovest thou me more than these? Because God wants to have that supreme love in our life. Isn't that right? And he will test us. And of course, he tested Abraham, told Abraham, get out of your father's house you know, leave your uh, relatives and so on and so forth. Abraham passed. All of those things were flying colors. And then God gave him a son. Here he was, an old man. It was a miracle, as we know. And as they, uh, that relationship developed, God looked down and he saw the love relationship between Abraham and Isaac. And one day he said, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom thou lovest. God saw the incredible affection that Abraham had for Isaac, and Isaac, no doubt, for his father. And he thought to himself, if I can embellish it a little bit, I know he loves me more than his father because he's willing to leave his father. I know he loves me more than his mother. He is willing to leave his mother. I know he loves me more than his country. He was willing to get out of his country. I know he loves me more than his relatives. He was willing to leave them. But I'm not sure he loves me more than he loves his boy. And so he says, I want you to take your son, your only son, and put him on the altar. And the next verse says, Abraham rose early in the morning. Boy, if there was ever a morning to sleep in. You know, I'd have been swallowing Tylenol PM the night before. You know, forget to set my alarm, pull the blinds, you know, trying to postpone the inevitable. Not Abraham. He jumped out of bed early that morning. He goes on a three-day journey, you know the story, and then he turns to his servants and said, you guys stay here. I and the lad will go yonder, and we will worship. We will worship. It's the first time in the Bible that worship is ever mentioned. There's no music, there's no choir, nobody singing and swaying in the background, just radical obedience. In fact, Webster's uh, definition, if you have his old a dictionary that you can rebuy now. It's been republished, the 1828 edition. Uh, Webster, I guess it is prime. Very godly man, whether he's born again as we would know it, I don't know, but certainly a very godly man. And this is his definition of worship, to honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. To honor with extravagant love and extreme submission. That's his definition of worship. Taken again from the very first mention of worship in the Bible. It establishes what worship really is all about. And I believe that's one of the greatest acts of worship. Here he takes his son, he uh, binds him up, he puts him on that altar that he built. He's ready to plunge that knife in and God says, now I know. Because you've not withheld your son, your only son, and God no longer adds whom thou lovest. Because he knows that his love for God surpassed the love of that boy. The second great act of worship, I think, is in the life of David. And, of course, we have a lot of, you know, much of our worship these days in charismatic circles and Pentecostal circles. We call it Davidic music. We have an understanding. David, of course, was a great uh, psalmist. He was the ones that introduced stringed instruments and so on. You know, whatever has breath, whatever will make a noise almost. You know, let's uh, use it for the glory of God. And David was extravagant in his, uh, in his worship. Isn't that right? 
in his praise. I mean, there's one occasion where he's bringing back the ark and he's doing cartwheels down Main Street, you know, much to the chagrin of his wife who's embarrassed and, you know, darling, you're a, you know, don't act like a fool. You're the king. You know, pull yourself together, man, you know, type thing. And David said, I'll be even more undignified if necessary. I don't care. I'm doing it for God. I'm not doing it for a show. I'm not doing it to impress the bystanders, you know. And so David was extravagant. But I think David's greatest act of worship was not on that occasion. His greatest act of worship came after one of his greatest sins. When he took the, another man's wife, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, they uh, had a relationship. Nine months later, a little boy is born. And uh, by this time, David has gone through Psalm 51, repented, cleared his conscience, got right with God, and so on, and then this baby is born, and within a matter of days, God strikes the life of that child with a fever. David disappears into his room for seven days, begins to cry out to God. At the end of seven days, he's notified. He hears his servants whispering or something, comes to the realization something's going on. They tell him the baby's dead. And you can imagine, like any parent, they've anticipated the arrival of this child He's already said, Lord, uh, you know, against thee and the only of I sin, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. He settled the score with God, and yet now God has taken the life of that child. If I'd have been David, I could have mounted a pretty good defense. You know, I could have gone back into the presence of God and said, God, you're the one that said on several occasions, no longer will you use this proverb in Israel. The fathers have sinned, therefore the children are going to reap the benefits, so to speak, or not the benefits, the, the curses. I'm the one that sinned. This is an innocent child. Not only that, but I've confessed my sin. You know, God, this is totally unjust. You said yourself, you know, the fathers have eaten sour, gra- uh, sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. That's what we say. He says, you don't use that anymore. Every man is responsible for his own sin. And David could have said, God, I'm responsible, but I've confessed my sin. You've forgiven me. You know, why are you taking the life of this child? But David doesn't do that. The Bible says that when he found out, he went into his room, he washed, he put on new garments, he went right back into the presence of God and he worshiped. That's the greatest act of worship in David's life. During that dark night, as the old mystics would say, the dark night of the soul. Here he is going through one of the most difficult moments in his life, the loss of a child, but God's worship has not changed. God has not changed. He's still worthy. We still honor him as God. We still recognize him as God. And David comes back in and he lays aside all of his uh, emotions and everything else, the grieving, and he begins to worship God. That has to be, to me, one of the greatest acts of worship. Oh, not when everything's going well, when you've got the ark for the first time, it's been missing for 40 years, and he's doing flips down Main Street, cartwheels, and so on. We all get excited, you know, when something good happens. But when something terrible takes place, something that is beyond repair, so to speak, we tend to blame God, not worship God. But David worshiped God. And then I think the greatest act of worship, and again, uh, you can differ with me if you like, is the case of Job. And you know the story of Job. We're introduced to Job as an honest, God-fearing, upright man. I mean, we have this sort of pedigree, 
you know, that uh, he was one of the greatest men in the East, you know, morally and character is, is impeccable and so on. And then the devil comes, and I don't understand all of the ways these things work, but uh, the devil comes to turn in his report card, so to speak. And uh, again, without distorting it, let me uh, at least embellish it a little bit. The devil is about to leave is the way I see it in my mind. And God says, oh, by the way, devil, step back in here a minute. And the devil says, am I missing something? He says, yeah, I want to ask you something. See that man way back in the corner there? The devil says, yeah. God says, uh, recognize him? devil says, no. How did I miss him? I spend my life going back and forth seeking whom I can devour. But he sure looks happy. Big smile on God's face. God says, are you sure you don't recognize him? Have another look. Sure looks happy, but I don't recognize him. Big smile on God's face again. God says, that's Job. Job? No. That's, that's Job? You mean the Job the alcoholic? Job the wife beater? Job the kid that, the guy that, you know, raped his own daughter? I, 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 that Job? God says, yeah, that Job. Now you're looking at me like, you know, what Bible are you reading? Same one you're reading. See, my Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. Job was a product to the grace of God. Whether he was as bad as I'm describing him or not, he was a sinner. He was a sinner. And he needed the grace of God. And the Bible says we are his workmanship. And God likes to have a smile on his face. Look what I did to this guy. He used to be a druggie. You know, he used to be an alcoholic. But I transformed him. And the devil says, now I know why I didn't recognize him. You've put a hedge around about him. I haven't seen him now for a couple of years. He, I've heard that he's a multimillionaire, but I haven't been able to touch him. But I tell you what, God, when I corrupt, I absolutely corrupt. God says, when I cleanse, I absolutely cleanse. And the devil says, listen, if you remove that hedge, I'll prove to you that deep down, the only reason he's Acting the way he is is because, again, you've made him a multimillionaire. But I'll show you, again, that he's, in his heart, he's unclean. And God says, don't you dare call unclean what I call clean. And God says, okay, I'll test you. The devil says, okay. You remove the hedge, and I'll prove, the devil says, that I'm right and you're wrong. God says, I'll remove the hedge, and I'll prove that I'm right and you're wrong. Only one rule, you can't take his life. Devil says, okay. They shake on it, and the next day, Job buries ten children. Seven sons and three daughters. Can you imagine? And according to Job chapter 1, those kids are already grown. They've got their own homes. Presumably, they're married. And you can imagine those grieving wives because their husbands have died, the grieving husbands because their wives have died, grieving children because mommy's gone or daddy's gone. Can you imagine that? Ten funerals in one day. And then Job comes down with boils. From the top of his head to the sole of his feet, he's in absolute agony. 
just can't get any sort of relief again, you know, just scratching himself crazy. He's sitting on a pile of ashes. Why does a multimillionaire sit on an ash heap? I believe that's his mansion that was gutted with the winds and the flames and everything that destroyed his children's home. Here his multi-million dollar mansion has been reduced to nothing but ashes. And in the midst of the ashes, he sees a little bit of pottery and he thinks, my God, that was my wife's favorite little piece. And he reaches down thinking it's still intact and he brings it out and it's just a piece of broken pottery. And he uses that and begins to try and get some relief and scratch himself and he's going crazy. And his wife said, listen, just curse God and die. If you curse God, it'll be over. If you curse God, the pain will be gone. God will take your life. That's the end. And right before that, it says, Job worshipped. Job worshipped. No music. No choir. No guitars playing in the background. In any of those cases, and to me, they're the three greatest. Again, you can argue others. But to me, at least, they're in the top echelons of real worship. Men that gave God the honor that was due him. Shall not the judge of all the earth Excuse me. Shall not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? As for God, his ways are perfect. Before we close, let me take you back now to verse 10 again. And the 24 elders will fall down before him that sits on the throne and will worship him. The one who lives forever and ever and will cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy art thou, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou didst create all things, and because of thy will they existed and were created. Notice something, if you will, that the worship is centered around the one that sits on the throne. Let me say that again. The worship is centered around the one that sits on the throne. Whatever is on the throne of your life is the object of your worship. He said to Abraham, because you have not withheld. The thing that you withhold from God is the object of your worship. God, you can have all of this, but don't touch my boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it may be, my reputation. You know, the thing you withhold is the thing that you value the most. This chapter begins with a throne. It ends with a throne. In fact, you can count the number of times. There's about... Eight or ten times at least that the word throne is mentioned in that one chapter. If we want to know the habitation of God, we've got to understand the ways of God. We've got to understand his nature, his character, who he is. He's a holy God. He demands, again, that he has the throne of your life and my life. And we wonder why we don't have the abiding presence of God many times. Why is it that God seems to be afar off? Because we're trying to play according to our own rules. We've, you know, we've bought into certain theologies and certain doctrines and, and so on and so forth. And Now, see to it that you make it exactly according to the pattern. Let's close in prayer. Father, we want to honor you. Honor you as God. Honor you as King, Master, Lord, Creator, Owner. 
Father, we're not our own. We've been redeemed by the blood, bought with the blood of the Lamb. Lord, forgive us for not giving you the honor, the respect that you deserve. Forgive us, Lord, for sitting on the throne and being in charge of things in our lives that, Lord, you want to rule over. Lord, we want to know what it is to move from visitation to habitation. We want to become the dwelling place of God. Lord, that's your eternal desire. Lord, what you said to Moses so many years ago, build me a house, build me a sanctuary that I may dwell. You want to dwell with us. You don't want to just visit us. We have a good meeting, say, boy, that was a great meeting, and then have to run somewhere else to find the presence of God in some other spiritual hot spot. Lord, we want your abiding presence. Will we wake up in the morning and know that you're there with us? We're our life, Lord. Everything we do is bringing pleasure to you. Think how Pastor Quinton mentioned Enoch and your word says that he walked with you 300 years and he had one single testimony that he was pleasing to you. Father, we want to have a life that pleases you. Not a life that grieves you. Not a life that hurts you in some way, but a life that is pleasing. Tonight, let's just take a moment. If there are things in your life that you say, listen, I've never consciously given God the throne. You can do that tonight. Oh, there may be things that you've got to work out, but it begins again with a, like marriage, I do. It's the beginning of a journey. I did it at the age of 18. I had one dream to go into graphics. That was my gifting, and God dealt with me over a period of many, many years, and I had to come to that place of putting everything on the altar and saying, Lord, I give you my life, not my sin, my life. I want you to come and have your way. Use me in whatever way you can and so on. It begins again with a commitment. Lord, here's the throne of my life. I abdicate. I step aside. I crown you, Lord, master of my life. Maybe you've done that and yet you've allowed things to come into your life where you can say, listen, I'm not living a life of holiness. I'm not doing things that are bringing pleasure to the heart of God. There's sin in my life. There's unforgiveness in my life. Maybe that needs to be settled. Maybe for somebody else, you're just one of those people that you find it hard to just rejoice. Thanksgiving does not come easily. It's more that you find things to complain about. You say, Lord, forgive me. And then for all of us, I think this area of worship. Lord, teach us to worship. Lord, your word says the Father seeks those who will worship him in spirit and truth. Father, teach us how to worship. Regardless of the circumstances we go through, regardless of our 
trials and things that we face, Lord, your worship never changes. See to it again. You make it exactly according to the pattern. We're just going to take a couple more minutes and you just meet with God right where you are. You don't need to come to the altar. God looks at your heart. Lord, I want to go out of here tonight knowing that, Lord, I've built it according to the pattern. I want your presence more than anything else. Lord, I want your smile of approval on everything that I do. Father, we simply ask you tonight, God, that you would help us to hate what you hate and love what you love. Father, we know that you called us to be holy as you are holy. Lord, the truth is, is without your grace, God, we can't do that. So, Father, tonight, God, we ask for that enabling grace um, that helps us have dominion over all these things. Lord, tonight in our own hearts, God, as your kids... Uh, Lord, we don't want to be people that insult the spirit of grace. God, we want to be people that uh, honor you and uh, desire to live a life of obedience and submission. And so, Lord, we ask God for the grace to do that, the empowering grace. Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're so kind and so good to simply point out the things that are grieving you, that stand between us and you. And uh, we just ask, God, that as we leave even here tonight, God, that those things uh, would not leave our memory. Holy Spirit, that you would shine your light on it and you would point it out and uh, that we would do what your word says, that we would run from it. So, Lord, we just pray that tonight that All of this would go deep in our hearts. God, it's our desire, God, that not only our very lives, but God, this church would be a place, God, where your uh, presence manifests. And uh, Lord, we do desire not just the occasional visitation, but Lord, we desire habitation. Lord, if we could somehow utter the words of Moses where he said, God, unless your glory goes before us, God, we don't want to go. Uh, God, we don't want to do life without you. Lord, we did that a long time, and Lord, it didn't work out too well. So God, we want to go with you. And Lord, we're not asking tonight uh, that you would follow us. Lord, we know that when you called the disciples, you said to follow you. And uh, so Lord, tonight, God, if we've been somehow running ahead of you and and uh, telling you to catch up, Lord, we... Uh, we, we just repent and we stop that tonight, God, and we get in line with you. 
And uh, God, when you step to the right, we step to the right. When you go left, we go left. Uh, Father, we're here to follow you. Lord, I'm asking God tonight that you would even forgive some of us who have put uh, doing a work for work of ministry or trying to go and witness and do things. God, that that when we've uh, God, that you just forgive us for putting those things ahead of just walking with you and knowing you. So, Lord, tonight, thank you for uh, just rearranging our priorities. And, uh, Lord, we know that you uh, shine your light on it, but it's really up to us to get and get those things in order. And so, Lord, tonight, as we've uh, prayed so often, God, give us the courage to do so. Um, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to ask the worship team just kind of come up and play. Um, I'm going to be really specific here. I know Brother David said that we don't necessarily need to uh, come up to an altar tonight, but I believe there's something very powerful about an altar. And, uh, you know, a place of, the altar is simply a place of death. And uh, like he said, it could be a small thing or it could be a big thing. Um, you know, we're really good at ranking sin, uh, but sin is sin. And, uh, Obstacles are obstacles. So uh, I want to do this, and he and I actually talked about this. If uh, if you just want to do personal business with God, and obviously this is between you and him, uh, you know, if you come and you kneel at the altar, no one will come mess with you. Uh, you know, so often we, we come to an altar to do uh, business with God, and somebody wants to come uh, rub our back, pat us on the back, and do all those things, and it becomes a distraction. And uh, so if you come tonight and you kneel down, no one will come and uh, touch you. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to make this really clear. Even if that's your spouse, uh, please leave them alone. If it's your kid, leave them alone. And uh, let them do business with God. And if you would like for somebody to come in agreement and pray with you, come and just stand up here. And one of us will come and we'll uh, come and, and uh, you know, take you by the hand and, and hear what you want to pray about. And we'll pray with you on that. Amen.